Everything happens so much all of the time. I'm Charlie Lewis, a uh, crikey reporter, broadcasting from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, so Spin Cycle is uh, a show that attempts to unpick and unravel the um, the omni-shambles, I suppose, that is uh, modern media in Australia. Uh, and that's a daunting task at the best of times, but this week and the last few weeks have been um, one of the most, frankly, like bananas periods in in recent history in Australian media. Uh, we've had the ongoing sagas concerning the reporting around uh, former Liberal Party staffer Brittany Higgins and her allegations against her former colleague uh, Bruce Lerman. We've had uh, the incredible competing coverage of disgraced former soldier Ben Robert Smith. Um, but then even on top of that, we've had just today, we've had the news of 150 job cuts, up to 150 job cuts at the ABC, including the um, the really shocking redundancy of the political editor, the longtime journo, um, Andrew Proben. And of course, the Greens have also introduced today a bill into Parliament trying to establish a royal commission into the influence of News Corp or, you know, colloquially known as the Murdoch Media uh, on public life in Australia. And wouldn't you know it, this week of all weeks, my, my wonderful co-host and, uh, let's be honest, the, the person in the team who really does, is actually good at radio um, and good at interviewing, Jess Lilly, has taken ill and um, can't be with us. So uh, please join me in sending her good vibes. We miss you, Jess. Please get well soon. Please don't leave me alone again. Uh, but the, 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 uh, the fun side of this is that our regular listeners can play the game of spot the, the catastrophic technical issue that comes about because of Charlie's incompetence while Jess is away. Uh, there's always one. Hopefully it's just one this week. Um, but thankfully it won't just be me uh, trying to navigate all this this omni-shambles uh, this week. We're going to be having a chat with um, the veteran journo uh, academic and advocate uh, Dennis Muller, who's a, a real friend of the show, a really wonderful um, thinker about the state of the media. Um, and he's going to come and join me and we're going to try and get through all of this. Before we do get to him, though, I think it's probably worthwhile me trying to just set some of the things that he and I are going to discuss in context, just partly so that I don't keep him waiting for 20 minutes while I try and introduce all the things that I'm going to chat to him about. Um, the the major, major kind of uh, intersections of a lot of issues that affect the media have made themselves apparent uh, in the last few weeks uh, around two, two major stories uh, in particular. Firstly is the reporting around Ben Robert Smith. Ben Robert Smith um, is the most decorated living Australian soldier and... Um, received the Victoria Cross for uh, his bravery um, on uh, fighting in Afghanistan. And he was uh, an extremely high-profile figure and, and much beloved by various institutional figures uh, for a, a great deal of time, um, both in the media and in politics. Um, in 2018, a series of reports were, were done by the nine papers um, – particularly the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, um, which totaled up in the totality, basically, to accuse him of war crimes. He initially um, sued, and recently it was found by the judge in that case, uh, the Justice Anthony Pasanko, that... Um, the, the nine papers had established basically on the balance of probabilities that there was truth behind the things that they alleged and he dismissed the vast majority of the um, defamation claims that uh, Ben Robert Smith had put forward. This is a momentous case uh, for so many different reasons um, not least of which it is very, very, very hard for a publisher in Australia to win a defamation case. It is The, the, the cards are 
very much stacked against them. Um, that would be significant enough in and of itself. But we've had two developments um, sort of running parallel with that. Firstly, there is the fact that um, Kerry Stokes, who uh, owns the West Australian and is a senior figure at um, Seven West Media, uh, essentially he is to he has a level of control of the media uh, and a, a concentration of control of the media in Western Australia that Rupert Murdoch can only dream of having in the rest of Australia. He uh, is a very powerful figure in that state. He has been he. Again, this has been revealed is that he bankrolled um, Bear Robert Smith's defamation action against one of his commercial rivals and also was very open in um, in condemning uh, what he called scumbag journalists for their reporting on Robert Smith and saying that the SAS should be applauded um, rather than condemned. Um, there's that. And then in the time since this uh, decision came down, we've seen a, a very interesting um, line of questioning reporting from the News Corp papers, the, um, particularly in the Australian. Um, a lot of it is is relatively predictable insofar as they focus a lot on the fact that this is a, an aberration that, that the vast majority of Australian soldiers are, conduct themselves with, a, with, a, with dignity and professionalism and a level of bravery that an ordinary citizen cannot um, cannot understand uh, and that we remain in their debt. That's a particular line. But the um, that has gone further in, in the weeks since this decision was handed down, um, particularly in, in the work of Peter Credlin, who's done a lot of work to, I suppose, muddy the waters around it, to, make, to really emphasise that this was a civil matter and it was decided on the balance of probabilities that uh, Ben Robert Smith had not been found guilty of anything and that it hadn't reached the uh, criminal um, level of uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, which is true, but also if anyone who works in the Australian media really ought to know just how difficult it is for a publisher to win a case of this sort. The other thing that I think is worth um, focusing on is the other element of um, of discrediting to the case that has been put forward, which is the uh, – I'll, I'll quote Credlin here. Uh, if anyone thinks that this has been a popular support for what happened in the last six days, is kidding themselves because community feeling is white hot. That really, uh, and this is something that I'm going to really ask Dennis about, is that really reminded me a great deal of what we heard coming out of Fox News after the 2020 US election. That was how they discredited that process. Often presenters would not say, I think that the election has been stolen from Donald Trump. What they would say is, there are a lot of people who think that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. I'm not saying that, but there are many people who feel that way, and they happen to be my viewers. Um, the other major story that I that um, Dennis and I will be getting into is the reporting around uh, former Liberal Party staffer Brittany Higgins and her allegations that she was raped by her former colleague uh, Bruce Lerman. That um, obviously was made public for the first time in 2021 via um, stories in news.com.au uh, by Samantha Maiden and, and very high profile via um, uh, a televised interview that was done between Brittany Higgins and uh, then host of the project, Lisa Wilkinson. Um, there has been a, uh, a real flurry of, I guess, coverage in the other direction, shall we say. Um, recently, Channel 7 interviewed Bruce Lerman, his his first public uh, interview since these allegations were made public to give basically his side of the story. Um, there has been a great deal of work, again, done in the Australian, particularly in the commentary section, um, once again, praising this, uh, um, this coverage from Channel 7, um, putting it forward as though it were comparing it very unfavorably or favorably to um, Lisa Wilkinson's reporting. 
And there has now been a flurry of stories attacking the process that Wilkinson undertook in terms of putting this story out there, uh, sort of alleging um, a, a desire for awards and commercial prestige, um, alleging a sort of unhealthy closeness between journalist and subject, um, and putting a lot of muddied water in there in terms of uh, revealing details that, say, counteracted uh, the story that uh, Higgins had put forward. This has now actually developed into a major political story because the reporting has now moved from that focus to uh, what Labour politicians knew and when they knew it, um, all of which is uh, seemingly um, collateral in attacking a commercial rival. Radio Three Triple R. Dennis Muller worked as a journalist for 27 years, including as assistant editor at the Sydney Morning Herald and associate editor at The Age, and is now a leading expert on media ethics. Dada Muller teaches media ethics at the, for the Master of Journalism at Melbourne University and is the author of Media Ethics and Disasters and Journalism Ethics for the Digital Age. He's an honorary fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism, and he's been on the show before, and we are absolutely delighted to have him back. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so, Dennis, we've seen, I think we appear to be dealing with about five or six simultaneous major crises um, afflicting the, the mainstream media in Australia this week, um, which I'm sure we'll get to in time. But um, given that our last major conversation was about um, public broadcasters, um, I'd really be interested to get your take on, on what we saw today with the, the announcement of the job cuts, and, and in particular, the, um, the cutting of the political editor role. Well, it's, it's absolutely incomprehensible. Uh, Andrew Proben, who's the chief political reporter for ABC News in Canberra, uh, has been made redundant because the position of political editor for the news division has been abolished, which is an astonishing step by the ABC. And they've, at the same time, they say, they've abolished the, uh, the position and they said it had nothing to do with Andrew. Well, that's simply untenable because uh, they've let go uh, not just their political editor, but one of their very ex experienced reporters who uh, has done, I think, a fine job both for the ABC and for the West Australian newspaper before he worked for the ABC. He's a very good, experienced reporter. So it's, it, it doesn't make any sense they say that they have abolished his position, but it's nothing to do with Andrew. They could have abolished the position and kept proven if, if they'd had any sense, but they've they've chosen to um, terminate him today, basically. Now uh, it's it's you know it's quite incomprehensible. Yeah, and I suppose I mean that that is you've, there's there's two sort of elements to this. Obviously, there's there's uh, Proben's um, individual qualities as a journalist, which you've which you've alluded to, but there's also the question of of what the what what the national broadcaster is telling Australia by by making a role. Well, as seemingly pivotal as the editor of their political coverage, um, treating that as though that is a that is a, a nice to have but not a need to have. Yeah, well, it's saying to the public that uh, we're not uh, as serious about covering politics as we have traditionally been, and as that you would expect us to be. So uh, we're going to be prepared to run our Canberra bureau on more junior staff. Uh, on the assumption that you won't notice the difference, well, people will notice the difference. 
Um, and the other thing that's puzzling is that they keep talking about this digital first strategy that they mm-hmm. say, uh, you know, people are increasingly going to digital platforms for their news. Well, that's true. The point is, you've got to have some content. No matter what the platform is, you've actually got to have some content on it. And the content's got to be good. So why wouldn't you have kept someone like Proben, who's a skilled print journalist, apart from a skilled broadcast journalist, why not keep someone like Proben on who can actually work across all these platforms and on the digital platforms? You need more writing than you do on broadcast platforms. So um, none of it adds up to me at all. And I, I'm a cynical person, or I try not to be, but I'm afraid I am at some, at some times. I think back to 2017, um, and you might remember in 2017, um, the then chair of the ABC, Justin Mill, uh, was leaning on the then managing director, Michelle Guthrie, to get rid of Proben, uh, among others, hmm. because, quote, Turnbull, who was in prime minister, Hated him. Yes. Now, I, I don't know whether in some way this is a hangover from those times or whether the ABC is simply not explaining itself very well, but it seems to me, com- as I say, completely incomprehensible and uh, and has no- can have nothing whatever to do with the fact that people are using digital platforms more than they're using radio and television. Yeah, you would say that the, the content is relatively neutral. The, sorry, the, the format delivery is, is neutral in terms of the, the, what actually matters, what draws people to these places is, is the content, as you say. And, and I suppose along similar lines, we've seen that, they are, that the, the ABC is likely to uh, no longer do any kind of uh, dedicated art. They're not going to have a dedicated arts team for the first time yeah. in, their, in their reporting history, which again... Yeah. yeah, which which again strikes me as a, a real abnegation because that the ABC has for such a long time been one of the few places where you could still get very good in-depth arts coverage because it wasn't oh, being well, determined by it. Yeah. It's been central. I mean, for many decades, it was the ABC that actually ran the big symphony orchestras in Australia. Right, yeah. So the, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, the Sydney Symphony, all of those big symphony orchestras were actually run by the ABC and it was part of what made the ABC the most important cultural institution in the country and was part of its charter. Part of its charter, when it was set up in the 1930s, was to be um, an outlet for Australian talent, uh, for education, for for basically broadening our cultural horizons. That was actually all part of the ABC's original purpose. And uh, it seems to me that none of those requirements, none of those needs uh, that society has have gone away. Uh, But what the ABC board and management have now decided to do is basically to deal the ABC out of culture and, uh, and the arts. And that's Quite extraordinary, mm, and, and it, as you say, that that process has been been going for a lot while. There was obviously uh, vivid memories of, of Radio National's music coverage, all those music shows being being gutted about twenty sixteen under the under the uh, auspices of um, of Michelle Guthrie. And I suppose the thing that sort of always, you know, had we been having this conversation, had this happened uh, a bit over a year ago, we would have probably been speculating a bit about about political influence on this we would have you know obviously the the abc it's i don't think it's a controversial statement to say the abc sustained serious damage and constant attacks while there was a coalition government in in power but now we have seen that 
that change, obviously. And I think a lot of people who, who really value the ABC assume that this, there'd be a period of calm and perhaps rebuilding now that there was a Labour government in charge. I mean, do you see any... Uh, any connection between day-to-day politics and this stuff happening, or is it, or is it something that's just a longer-term? Oh, it's, it is. Um, it's true that the government has changed, but it's equally true that the ABC board continues to be stacked with Liberal Party right. mates. Hmm. So uh, it's yes. So I, I think that the legacy of the Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison governments lives on. In the in the constitution of the ABC board, and until that board fundamentally is spilled, which the present government shows no sign of doing, uh, then I think that legacy will remain a reality within the ABC. Right, right. I suppose, again, because we've got limited time, um, we could talk about that all night, but also I want to chat with you a little bit about some of the um, the, the developments we've seen in the last few weeks in, in commercial media. Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in your views um, on the coverage that we've seen, particularly coming from The Australian and Channel 7, um, around uh, the ongoing coverage of the Brittany Higgins-Bruce Lemon saga. And I suppose... I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been recently re- reading um, uh, Sally Young's book, Media Monsters, and what that makes clear, it's a bit history of newspapers in, in Australia. Uh, it's the second volume of a three-volume, and it, it talks a lot about how media owners were always very explicit political and commercial players, and that was always the case. There was never any golden era where that wasn't the case. That said, though, have you ever encountered um, coverage? I'm, I'm talking particularly here about the coverage of uh, Lisa Wilkinson's interview of, of Higgins that was so seemingly explicitly motivated by by commercial uh, concerns, by, by attacking a commercial rival? There's a, there are a lot of aspects to this, Charlie. Um, the answer to your question is no. I've never seen anything quite like this. Um, and, uh, and I think there are several aspects to it. One is um, that there, there is a legitimate story to be, to be published and to be pursued about Katie Gallagher, the finance minister, and what she said in the Senate, mm-hmm. and whether she said the Senate. That's, a, that's a, a legitimate media story about the accountability of a senior politician. But the problem is that, in, that they haven't stopped there. They have trawled, they had leaked to them a vast trove of text messages and emails from Brittany Higgins and her partner many, much of which uh, is private and had nothing whatever to do with the Katie Gallagher uh, accountability story. They, could, they, they, were legitimate, they were legitimately able to draw on the texts and, um, and other material insofar as it applied to Katie Gallagher, but they should have stopped there and they didn't. They went a lot further, and we saw this both on the Channel 7, in, in, and of course the Channel 7 uh, people then get Bruce Lerman in uh, to interview him, and so we take the whole thing a step further, and we start to litigate his defamation action against Channel 10 and the ABC outside of the courtroom. So we've got a, we've got a whole series of problems. We've got uh, material that was provided by Higgins uh, to the court as part of the criminal proceedings against Lerman. They were discontinued. But those materials should never have been leaked from from wherever they, they were leaked from because they were garnered in pursuit of uh, a court proceeding. They were subpoenaed. They were, they were required to be supplied. And then 
on the other, when it came to the civil proceedings, we have this situation in which Channel 7 uh, basically publishes an interview to counter the Channel 10 interview that mm-hmm. Ricky Higgins had given. And so we are, have the situation where uh, material from a criminal trial has been misused and we have a situation in which uh, a, a civil case, a defamation case, is now being litigated uh, outside the courtroom. And I think I've never seen anything quite, quite like that. Yeah, and it almost seems. I mean, you, you say that that um, you say that you know. Obviously, there's a legitimate story, and in many ways, there is with 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 what a politician knows and what they say to Parliament about what they know. Um, but but it almost seems as though that was incidental to that was picked up. The, the the actual target was was Wilkinson, and it seemed to have been from from my point of view anyway. It seemed as though that had been picked up incidentally. That just helps kind of. Um, help give legitimacy to the the main story, which was the attack on the original interview? Yes. Well, um, you may well be right about that. Um, and, of course, um, News Corporation, uh, the Australian, has got a long history of using whatever material it can to denigrate and damage its commercial rivals. Um, but, but nonetheless, I, 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 I would still say that the the Gallagher story was was a legitimate story, uh, even if even if you're right when you say it, was, it started out as the subordinate story mm-hmm. that were that at least it, at least it had legitimacy. Uh, whereas I don't I don't think that the uh, the invasion of uh, Higgins's privacy to the extent that it was invaded was in any way legitimate. And we and they've lost sight, I think, of the harm principle because we know that the. The criminal proceedings against Lerman were discontinued on the basis that to, to put him through a second trial would have been harmful to Higgins's mental health. Mm-hmm. That consideration seems to have been completely disregarded. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And I suppose still on, on, on News Corp and, and the other kind of major media story that we've been seeing, I mean, it, it's been unfolding for years now, but there's obviously come to a head in the last couple of weeks, um, the Ben Robert Smith case. Now, obviously, there's, there's a few, again, very, very big media elements to this. We've got the fact that, it, that Ben Robert Smith's defamation case against the nine papers was being bankrolled by um, Kerry Stokes, another the owner of another media organization. Um, but the other thing that I've been really interested in is the coverage from News Corp since the decision was handed down to, to throw that defamation case out. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I, I, uh, do you detect any influence from Fox News in their response? I'm sp- thinking specifically of a huge emphasis not on that they think, not that the writer or the commentator thinks that the, the the process was bad or illegitimate, but that the public think that, that a lot of their readers have given contact to say that they think this process wasn't done properly. I, I don't know. I, I wondered if you saw any parallels there. No, I, I haven't actually seen any, any parallels there. But um, I think what is certainly the case, and Nick McKenzie, one of the reporters who wrote those uh, stories about Ben Robert Smith, Uh, made the point of saying the day after the judgment that News Corporation had run what he called counter-journalism on this story. Basically, uh, a fellow called Ross Coulthard, who used to be a reporter and is now a PR man, uh, was producing material to News Corporation um, in the early stages of the trial, basically undermining the quality of the Age and Sydney Morning Herald's case. Uh, And... They've done that before. I remember they did it before when the when Chris when Nick McKenzie had a story about a outfit called Una Oil, 
and the the Australian was happy to pick up the public relations counter journalism from Unoil, just as they've been happy to pick up the counter journalism from the Ben Robert Smith interests to basically promote stories which sought to undermine the credibility of the Agent Sydney Morning Herald copy. That's that's been the main uh, the main activity of News Corp in relation to the Ben Robert Smith case, as far as I'm concerned. I think. Right. Yeah. And do you feel that? The, the mainstream, and particular, and again, I, 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 I feel that we, we, we shouldn't always sheet all the, 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 the ills of the world back to News Corp. But, but while we're on that subject, there does. Do you feel that there's any sense that there's a bit of a spiral going on here, where, the, where you start following other people's coverage to discredit it, and then you kind well, of you can't get out of that cycle. Well, it's been going on for a long time in the media. Um, the media are always trying to spoil the opposition, mm. um, but. Uh, but taking it to the extent of basically running a narrative counter to uh, the, the narrative that in this case has become the subject of court proceedings in an attempt to undermine uh, public confidence in the quality of that reporting, uh, that is a bit unusual. But, of course, we saw this with the phone hacking scandal in London. We saw when The Guardian broke the story that News Corporation had been hacking people's telephones, we saw first a News Corporation taking a complaint against The Guardian to the, to the press council in Britain. But we also saw other newspapers uh, in England, including the Daily Telegraph in London, basically taking News Corporation's side against The Guardian. The Guardian was telling the truth in the end. The Guardian had the, go- had the goods on News Corporation, but... The media turned on The Guardian for telling the truth about one of their own. And so uh, we, we see this fairly grubby uh, kind of activity um, outside of the Ben Robert Smith case. Right, yeah. One of the, um, I think, quite noteworthy things that happened today as well, I'm not sure if you, um, if you caught this, that, that the Greens have introduced a, a bill seeking to establish a royal commission uh, into, into into the influence of, of, of News Corp and the Murdoch media and media diversity in general in the country. And um, it doesn't appear that... I mean, Labour have been pretty pretty open for a long time that they weren't going to support any move like that. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think it's a necessary process? Do you think it would make any kind of useful difference? Well, we had one. Um, the Senate um, Environment and Communications Committee conducted an inquiry into media diversity, which was basically cover for an inquiry into News Corporation. And that was the result. That was um, set up uh, in response to the petition by Kevin Rudd, now taken over by Malcolm Turnbull, um, wanting a royal commission into the the effect of News Corporation on our democracy. Uh, Neither side of politics want to touch that sort of thing with a barge pole. Uh, And the the reason's obvious, that the, the, um, the political price the amount of political capital that any politician would have to expend on calling a royal commission and a news corporation um, is simply uh, disproportionate to uh, uh, to the political gain that they might get. So that you know, it simply isn't going to happen. Uh, we've, we've had one Senate inquiry into news corporation, basically under the under the guise of uh, of media diversity. Um, it reported. Um, There was a a Liberal Party report and there was a Labor Party report. Um, Labor Party report was very critical of News Corporation. The Liberal Party report was dissenting from that. 
it's it's simply uh, a dead letter, not going to go anywhere. In in a world where um, there was a superhumanly thick-skinned or unbelievably charismatic politician who felt that they were able to withstand uh, what it would cost them to to do this, do you think it would be a good process, though? Do you think it would be a worthwhile thing to do, or would it be just telling people who already thought certain things what they already knew? I think I think you're right about that. And the question is, what do you do? Do you are you going to finish up with an attempt to strip News Corporation of its properties? Um, I mean, it's one thing to change the law to allow News Corporation to acquire uh, two thirds of the newspaper circulation mm-hmm. in Australia. Uh, it's quite another thing to pass a law taking those assets away. Uh, I, I don't think that um, that such a law would be found to be constitutional. So the question is, what would be the purpose? What would be the outcome? We've already we we see a lot of criticism of News Corporation, uh, most of it justified. Uh, but uh, that's not the way democracies work. We don't basically uh, take assets off people because we don't like their politics or we don't like their behaviour. Uh, we, I mean, we we, <laughs> we would be in a situation where uh, a, a federal government would be saying to News Corporation, uh, "We think you've got too much power. Uh, we are going to uh, change the law so that you will have to sell off." Um, whatever assets we think represent uh, a surplus to your requirements. I mean, that kind of thing is just isn't going to happen. So I, I don't see any any benefit in a, in a royal commission uh, because there won't be any change. And I think you're quite right. The community is already polarised about news cooperation and no Royal Commission report is going to make a blind bit of difference. And I suppose it does. I mean, it, it, it always becomes, as you start talking about issues like this, it becomes aware that suddenly certain you're giving the government a precedent that could be used against media that you think is actually quite worthwhile and does very useful work. And then you, yeah, you have a situation like you see in, in Brazil or Myanmar where media gets shut down um, when it's doing actually extremely worthwhile and valuable journalism. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, you, you, you know, what, what looks good today could easily be turned bad tomorrow. And I suppose, um, and maybe this is, this, is the, this is the point for us to, to end, um, where, with, with that in mind... What do you think, as you say, given that it is neither possible and probably not desirable that uh, any government could force a major media company to sell off some of its assets or, or diversify some kind of through some sort of forcible action, um, what then is available to not just governments, but also, I guess, individuals in terms of um, making sure that there is more of a, a healthy and, and flourishing media environment in Australia? It's uh, a very good question, Charlie. I think I think the Lord Leveson, Brian Leveson, who conducted the inquiry into phone hacking in London, I think he had the answer. Um, and the answer is uh, shortly stated: um, uh, legis- legislative law-based self-regulation. So you have Parliament pass a, a, a law which says to the media organisations, all of them, including Google and Facebook. Uh, look, this you 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 guys will set up a, a fair income accountability body. You will pay for it. It will do these things, and and the, and its functions will be set out in legislation. 
you you're, you will be in charge of you will run it, but it will be audited independently every couple of years, every three years or something. Uh, Statute-based self-regulation, I think, is the answer in the end because it means you don't have a government authority running it, but you have some kind of well-resourced, properly constituted um, organisation with with powers that are grounded in legislation, uh, basically holding these people to account. And whilst it's at arm's length from government, it's... Its, um, its performance is audited um, triennially, for example, by some uh, non-government group of people, you know, some, some body of um, well-qualified um, members of the great and good. I, I think that, that was what Brian Leveson recommended for England. I think that was the right approach. Uh, but once again, I don't see any... Um, any eagerness on the part of Australian politicians to expend any political capital on that. And that was going to be my next question, and um, and, and I, I suspected I knew your answer. Um, Dr. Muller, thank you so much for making some time to chat with me tonight. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I'm sure we'll find another excuse um, very soon. Uh, we'll let you go, but thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Charlie. Thank you. Triple R. I feel like um, this evening I've been very, very doomy. Um, and huge, huge thanks, by the way, to my guest, uh, Dr. Dennis Muller, who, as always, provided some wonderful um, insights and some wonderful balance to my my unlettered musings. Um, but I wanted to end on a couple of notes um, of, of hope. I've been doing a long piece in the last couple of weeks about artificial intelligence and the kind of uh, the bounce into our consciousness this has had recently while we start seeing things, a proliferation of, of, of artificial intelligence being used to do things that we used to think were uniquely human in, in their character. So that could be things like uh, painting in the style of great artists. You've seen a lot of people simulate um, famous artists like Drake in The Weeknd and, and, and actually any number of them now, including a lot of dead artists who are being shocked back to life to, to cover, cover other people's hits, basically. Inevitably, there's been pornographic uh, uses for it, either of real women being uh, turned into AI uh, versions of themselves uh, without their consent or just made-up women who are selling nudes. Um, You've also seen sort of malign political uses for it as well in terms of um, uh, video being faked of Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, uh, surrendering to Russian forces or, or an explosion at the Pentagon that didn't actually happen. Uh, in all these cases, this got me thinking about what it will and ultimately mean to be human in a world where we can be so easily replicated. Uh, so I spoke to a huge number of um, of experts in the area. And actually, I came away feeling a lot more um, positive and optimistic than I thought I was. Um, uh, all of them uh, eventually came around to the idea that uh, that in terms of great technological upheaval, you will always see reassertions of humanity in, in opposition to that. So I talked to an industrial uh, historian who talked about the kind of wiping out of not just jobs but ways of life, of, of ways of community that happened during the Industrial Revolution and said, so, well, but that then led to trade unions and consumer protection groups. So it, it kind of humans formed new ways of resisting it. Um, and then that was equally true of, of, of film and recorded music and that um, all of them kind of came to the conclusion that this will actually be a way for us to reassert what it is that is is to be human and and, um, and how that can exist. Um, so check that piece out. It's on. It's on Crikey at the moment. Um, uh, as I say, it, 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 I thought it was going to be extremely glum, but it, um, 
it ended up being um, actually kind of heartening. Um, I'm going to leave you with one more thought, actually, um, just before I go. Uh, this week, the auction for the Midwinter Ball went live. Now, this the Midwinter Ball is, a um, for those who are unfamiliar, a yearly party that the press gallery and politicians and camera kind of have together. There is a blanket rule that occasionally gets lifted but has been put back in place that they observe what's called Chatham House rules. So the idea that nothing that is said during the evening can be reported. Uh, if that sounds like it's a very weird level of coziness between politicians and the people who are employed to hold them to account, um, it's probably because it is. It also, until very recently, was being paid for by um, huge fossil fuel companies. That has now been um, has been corrected. That actually then flows on to the other way. These are all done, by the way, for charity. I should probably be fair and mention that. The charity auction this year is offering various things, um, including the ability, the the opportunity to um, play tennis or pool with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. You can take uh, two business class tickets to either Los Angeles or London. And finally, you can go to the Big Bash with three friends and leader of the opposition, um, Peter Dutton. I don't want to make any guesses about the uh, political makeup of the listeners of any Triple R show. I don't want to make any assumptions, but I think it might amuse everyone to hear that while there is bids going for the tickets, a very high bids going for the tickets, and some reasonable bids going for the idea of playing tennis with Anthony Albanese at this time, and the the this has now been live for a bit over 24 hours, there is yet to be a single bid for anyone who wants to go to the cricket with Peter Dutton. So I'll leave you with that. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nad Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.